Now, we don't talk a lot about it in maybe the Protestant church, but there is a good, strong church tradition that's really early that puts the disciple Thomas as a missionary in the subcontinent of India. And it seems to be pretty reliable that after Christ was resurrected, he goes, Thomas goes, and through different adventures and sailing and all sorts of stuff, ends up in the subcontinent of India and starts doing some pretty amazing missionary work. He plants several churches. He travels around that area and proclaims the gospel. And, you know, you put all these things together and you go, well, that, that's, a, that's a great story. But, but what kind of historical pieces do we have that, that give some veracity to this? Well, if you fast forward to, to 325 uh, CE, you get the Council of Nicaea, where the early church brings together bishops from all of the areas where Christianity is, and they're trying to settle this question of who is Jesus and how do we understand him and his nature, and they try to put all these things together. And in 325, we have a bishop that comes to the Council of Nicaea from India, and people are going, well, how did we get Christianity all the way out there to India? Well, it's likely Thomas took it there. If you go to India today in certain parts, you can actually attend churches that use the, the language, the Syriac, the ancient Syriac language as their liturgical language. Syriac is related to Aramaic, and it's, it's kind of interchangeable. And the Aramaic language was what was spoken at the time of Jesus, you know, when he was around doing his ministry. And so the question is, how is there even today still churches in India that use ancient Aramaic as its liturgical language? Where did, how did they get that there? Well, it had to have been somebody that brought it from the time of Christ over there then. So it seems that this missionary work of Thomas is still being felt. The effects of it are still felt in the world today. And we think about that, and we think, man, wow, this is amazing. So we go back and we look at the tradition some more, and we see that Thomas actually, he proclaims the gospel so much that he is eventually martyred for his faith. And what an incredible faith that was. But when we think of Thomas, you know, I would say, if we're doing word association, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you come with Thomas? Well, doubting. Doubting Thomas. So where is it that we end up with this great faith? I, I would suggest that great faith comes from great doubt. That great faith comes from great doubt, or at least it does in the case of Thomas. Uh, the disciples all suffer from doubt. You know, we, we like to pick on Thomas, but if you go to the last night of Jesus' life, it's pretty clear that all of the disciples are suffering from doubt. I want to read a, a passage of Scripture here, John 13 33 through 14, 11. It's a little bit longer than we normally read at one shot, but I would like to read it because I think it captures that last night and the drama of it. And so I would like for you to stand for the reading of God's Word. I know it's kind of an old tradition, but I think it's a good one. As we hear from God's Word, this is Christ speaking to the disciples. He's already foretold his betrayal. Judas has already left to get the high priest, and Jesus says this. He says, little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus answered, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Amen. You may be seated. I hope you were able to catch the, the drama and the agony of that last night. Jesus has, it's really, I think, unmistakable at this point. He's been anointed at Bethany. We looked at this last week where Jesus says, hey, listen, this is being done for my burial. And Judas picks up on this and he goes and he says, well, I'm going to at least get something out of this. And so he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The disciples are distraught. They're confused. Jesus at dinner has taken a, a, a bread and a cup. And he said, hey, look, this is my body. Okay? It's, it's for you. This is my blood. It is poured out for you. I, I'm, I'm about to die, but this is for you. And the disciples have got a lot of confusion. Jesus has said, I'm going to be betrayed. And he's told Peter that he's going to be denying him. He said, I'm going someplace and you cannot come with me. And so like any good friend or brother or father, Jesus reminds the disciples, he says, listen, when I'm gone, take care of each other. Okay? When I am gone, I want you to love each other. I want you to care for each other. I want you to look after each other. I want you to show each other the same care and the compassion and the love that I have for you. And that's how the world's going to know that you belong to me. It seems that Peter is not really content with these platitudes. And he says, well, Jesus, you don't have to go anyplace where I don't have to go. I'm going to come with you, Jesus. And Jesus tells him, no, Peter, actually, you're going you're to fail here in a little bit. Thomas isn't satisfied by these, what he thinks are platitudes as well. And he says, well, Jesus, if you're going to go, could you at least show us the way to the Father? Could you, could you give us a map or, or some sort of instructions or, or a path that we could follow, like, like very literally, that, that this, you know, this direction gets us to the Father? Could you, could you do that? And Jesus says, well, you've seen me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Philip, he says, well, well, Jesus, you know what? It's great that you are the way to the Father, but maybe you could show us the Father. And then that would be enough. You see, each of these men are giving voice to what I suspect is, is there with all of the 11 disciples. And they're all saying, Jesus, we believe you, but we've got questions. We believe you, but we've got a little bit of doubt. We believe you, but we're a little skeptical 
I mean, Peter says, Jesus, if you're going to go, well, let me follow. That way I at least know. Thomas says, well, well if, you, if you are the way, then show us the way. Philip says, if you've got the Father in the direction to him, show us him. The disciples are all plagued by doubt that last night. They're all plagued with doubt and skepticism. And I suspect that it is not something that we are unfamiliar with. As I describe doubt and skepticism to you, you're probably not going, I'm not, not real familiar with that. Doubt is something we like trade in here in America. I mean, it is sort of like, it's a staple of the American language and the American culture. I mean, American TV is full of doubt. We live in a society in an age that is skeptical and doubting. Uh, Psychological Science magazine reports a poll that between 1972 to 1974, they polled American adults, and 46% of Americans said they trusted most people. 46%, almost half, said, yeah, we trust most people. You fast forward to a little bit earlier in our decade, it falls by 13% to 33%. Only a third of Americans say that we trust most people. Where do you fall in that? Are you in the I trust most people category? If so, you're in the minority, the smaller minority there, that third. 72 to 74, 51% of Americans said they were skeptical of others. By the same time in our decade, it grows to 62%. People that say, you know, I just don't really trust people. You know, I, I hear what they're saying, and I think that they might be on the level, but I just don't think I can bring myself to trust them. They've got shifty eyes, you know. There's something about them that doesn't sit right with me. Today, 45% of Americans roughly report that they have hardly any confidence in the press or Congress. Less than half of America. Some of you are smirking. You're like, I didn't think it would be that high. (laughs) Really, 45%? That's pretty good. They trust the press. They trust Congress. Wow, That's, that's amazing. But the fact that we smirk and the fact that we chuckle, it, it's indicative that we really are this skeptical, doubting group of people. We don't trust other people. We look at them skeptically. We even celebrate skepticism and cynicism. I mean, turn on a good sitcom at night, a popular sitcom. Watch a show like House MD or Sherlock or Blacklist. And who do you have as the major protagonist, the hero of the story? Is who? It's somebody that is cynical and skeptical. We we praise them because they can see through everybody else and see through every situation and get to the real matter of something. These are skeptical, cynical people, and we look at them and we go, man, that's, that's a hero, a really good skeptic. That's who we are. You know, the slogan used to be, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Now it's, I'm not going to let you fool me at all because I don't trust you. <laughs> Just try to fool me. I'm watching you. That's how we work. And if we're this way with each other, is it any wonder that we don't trust God or things we can't see? I mean, if I can't trust my neighbor or I can't even trust my friend or my coworker, is it any wonder that we have a hard time trusting this God who isn't really, you know, like visible? What about that? If you look at another poll, the Eras poll, the American Religious Identity Survey, people are watching this really closely because it shows what are the religious groups that are growing in America. And if you look at the data, 
you know, the fastest growing group of religious people in America are those that claim no religion. Okay? The people that say, you know, what religion am I? I'm not. We call them the nuns, not N-U-N-S, the N-O-N-E-S. That's the, the nuns. People, I say that, people get confused. Um, but the nuns are the fastest growing religious group in America. But if you look at the data more, this is interesting to me. While like 12% people say that they are not religious, only 2% of them say God does not exist at all. I know beyond a certainty of a doubt that God does not exist. Only 2% of the 12 said that. The other 10, what did they say? They said maybe. Maybe not. Maybe God exists. Maybe God doesn't exist. But I'm not going to be fooled. I'm just not going to care. I'm going to be skeptical. I'm going to doubt. I don't know if he exists. I don't know if he doesn't exist. But I'm not going to be fooled by him being there. I'm not going to fooled by him not being there. I'm just going to doubt. That's the place in which we find ourselves. And it's to this world of skeptics. And perhaps that's you. Perhaps you came here because you got drug along to church because she was cute or her parents made you come or meet people for my business. For whatever reason you're here, you might find yourself in that 10%. And I'll tell you, I think Thomas has an incredible word to speak to people that deal with doubt. You come to John chapter 20, verse 24 and 25. It says this, it says, Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the disciples was not with him, that's the other disciples, when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with the story, let me just sort of back up and give you the, the context of this. Jesus has, has been crucified, he's been buried three days later, he's risen from the grave, he's appeared to Mary, he's appeared to a few other women, and he's appeared to the uh, ten disciples, minus Judas because he's dead, and minus Thomas because he's not there. People are always like, where's Thomas? Why isn't he with him? I don't know. He's hungry. I mean, he had something to do. He had to go meet somebody about something. I don't know where Thomas is. He's just not there. The text doesn't tell us. And so Thomas comes back, and they're like, hey, Thomas, guess who we ran into while you were gone? And they're like, Jesus. And Thomas is like, Jesus is dead. I saw him dead, and dead is dead. It's final. People don't come back from the dead. And all ten of his probably closest friends, I mean, he's been with these guys sleeping and eating and traveling and wandering all over the Judean wilderness. He has been with these guys for three years, and they all look at him straight face right in the eye and say, Thomas, no, seriously, Jesus is back. And Thomas says, unless I can see him, and that's the next part, he says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, unless I can put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas says, you know, it's not even seeing is believing. I've got to feel this. I've got to see it. I've got to touch it. If you've lived any amount of time, then you know what it means to have had your trust broken. You know, children start out pretty great with trusting people. But it doesn't take long before somebody fools you, and you play the fool, and you have your trust broken, that you start to say, you know what? I'm not going to trust people quite as easily as I used to. And when people say, will you trust me? We say, well, maybe but not right now. And we hold our trust because we know what it feels like to be fooled and to play the fool. And Thomas here, I'm sure, has had some of these experiences. Perhaps somebody close to him has lied. And maybe he got his hopes up and then was disappointed because somebody tricked him and he knew what it was like to be fooled. And he said, I don't want that. I don't want to be fooled. I don't want to play the fool. 
He's got damaged trust. And he says, you know, I'm sorry, I can't believe unless I see. I know that in, in the church today, we like to be a little rough on Thomas. You know, he's the doubting Thomas. We don't want to be like Thomas. But, you know, let, let's try to put ourselves in his position. You know, what if, you know, you were at your grandmother's funeral and you'd been to the viewing and then you're in that little funeral snack room, you know, where the, the funeral home puts all the stuff and the family sits and visits and, and they're there and they're talking and, and you're there and they come in and they're like, hey, listen, guess what? The funeral's been canceled. Grandma's back. I've seen her. People were all saying she looked good. She looked dead. Dead people don't come back. Unless I see it, I won't believe it. This is Thomas's dilemma. And I will tell you, of all the stories I love in Scripture, this one comes probably to my top ten. Because it proves to me that John is, is being truthful with us. John is writing this probably in the late 90s or early 90s of, of that first century, and he's writing to the church, and he is you know, one of the few disciples left. And if he's, you know, Paul has been saying, hey, listen, you know, our faith is built on the foundation of Jesus, you know, and the cornerstone of the apostles and all these things. And if he wants to make the, the cornerstone of the apostles, the foundation of the apostles, if he wants to make that look good, he's off to a bad start. It would be so much cooler if, if, if the gospel recorded something like this. You know, Jesus died, and we just all, you know, we, we prayed, and we waited for him because we knew he was coming back. And then Saturday night, we all got some candles, and we went down to the tomb, and we were just like there waiting with candles and like a, a sign that said, Welcome home, Jesus. And we were all like there, and, you know, all 11 of us got the stone rolled away because it is a big stone, and we just, you know, we just wanted him to walk out because we knew he was coming. It doesn't go like that in the text of Scripture. John says, we were scared out of our minds. We were hiding for fear of the Jews. And Thomas didn't even believe. Friends, this inspires great confidence in my mind of the veracity of this text. Why? Because they doubted. They doubted that dead people would come back from the grave. These people had some sense to them. But all of that changes with the resurrection. Thomas misses this appearance, and eventually Christ comes back. Let's look here at John chapter 20, verse 26 through 28. It says, A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. I love this text because Jesus is so comfortable with Thomas's doubt. It doesn't say, and then he said to Thomas, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you believe me? He slaps him. <laughs> he says, no, it's okay. Touch this. Put your hand here. See. And Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. It's an amazing text of Scripture that Thomas then believes when he sees Jesus, because it's in this narrative that Thomas gives voice to what every other skeptic through the centuries will say, I won't believe unless. I won't believe unless. But then he has this moment, something happens. He has this encounter with the Lord where he then makes what is probably one of the clearest, if not the clearest and most bold proclamation about the Lordship of Jesus when he says, my Lord and my God, which I really believe is what the soul of every human and every seeking skeptic wants to say, my Lord and my God. 
believe. It is right there on the declaration of Peter's faith where, where Peter says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But here Thomas says, you're not just that. He says, you are my Lord and you are my God. This conclusion is something that skeptics throughout the centuries have come to through their own doubt and skepticism. You know, notable skeptics of our time and era that have come to Christianity include a, a man like C.S. Lewis or, or Eric Metaxas, who's written a lot with, um, on Bonhoeffer's life and several other things. Lee Strobel, who wrote Case for Christ and Case for Faith and, and other cases. And then he's got, you've got Chuck Colson, you know, uh, Francis Collins. He, he uh, worked with this little project called the Human Genome Project. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, but he's this really brilliant research person. And Francis Collins, as a man with the intelligence to, to map out a human genome, he said, you know what, as I looked at the world and I saw how beautiful it was, I came to a conclusion that this was no accident. There had to be a God at some point. And so he turns from disbelief to belief. C.S. Lewis says he was drugged, kicking and screaming into the Christian faith. Lee Strobel says, I was this atheist journalist and I set out to sort of disprove Christianity and here he is working at Willow Creek Church on staff. These people are remembered as men of faith, but they started in a place of great doubt. Why is that? It's because great doubt comes from great faith. Why? Because there is no faith without doubt. It's sort of a prerequisite. If you don't have doubt, you can't have faith, because otherwise it would just be proof, then a conclusion. You know, I, I looked at this, I looked at the evidence, you know, one plus one was two, and two plus two was four, and then so I just, you know, I did the math and carried the one, and here I am, Christ follower. At some point, there is a step you've got to take. You know, for some people it's a big step, other people it seems to be a smaller step, but at some point you go, the, the, the evidence and the conclusion takes me here, but Jesus is over there, so I'm going to have to sort of just take this step and trust that he's over there. That's what faith's about. But you can't have faith without doubt. And Thomas reminds us, skeptics and saints and skeptical saints, all of us together, that Christ is comfortable with doubts and Christ is comfortable with questions and that out of great doubt and great skepticism and great questions comes great faith. You know, even Mother Teresa struggled with doubt. The world looked at it and said, my goodness, see, she was questioning her faith. But she's not remembered for that. She's remembered for a great faith. Why? Because great faith comes out of great doubt. But it isn't an easy proposition. I know that. I want to sort of wrap up with a story here. World War II, uh, January 28, 1945, the World War is coming to a close. 121 elite army rangers go to a Japanese prisoner of war camp on the island there in the Philippines. And as they are there, they are liberating these soldiers who are still there under the care of Japanese guards. If you've seen the movie Unbroken, you know that care is not the right word. These men have been abused and mistreated and tortured, and they've been led to believe things only to have their trust shattered underneath them. Louis Zamperini, the book Unbroken, if you've not read that, you, you know what I'm talking about. If you've seen the movie Unbroken, you've missed out on Louis Zamperini's life, though, because um, this is an aside. His book makes it clear that his life was redeemed because Jesus Christ came in and changed his life. The movie doesn't quite get that for some reason, although his own, his own words say Christ was the one that changed all those things. Anyways, coming back to this prisoner of war camp, these elite army rangers come 
to set these people free. And there in the midst, there's a man by the name of Captain Burt Bank who has been struggling with blindness caused by a vitamin deficiency. He couldn't make out his rescuers clearly. And they, they grab his arm and they say, hey, come on, let's go. They tug his arm, they're talking to him, and he refuses to leave the camp because he's had his trust broken a few too many times by evil tricks by the people that have been watching over him. Finally, a man comes up to him and says, what's wrong with you? Don't you want to be free? And he said it with a southern accent. Bank was from Alabama, recognized that voice. And he started to smile. And it was at that point he decided that he could trust the people that had come and said that he'd been set free. Faith's a hard step to take. But if we're going to experience the freedom in Christ, we have got to take that step. And nobody's exempt from being able to take it. No matter how smart you are or how skeptical you are or how doubting you are or any of those sorts of things, Thomas reminds us, that from great doubt comes great faith. Our worship team's going to come up this morning. Perhaps you are saying, you know what, today is the day I need to make a step of faith. Christ has come to set the prisoners free. Very literally is what Jesus says His mission is in the book of Luke. Set you free. Bring light into dark places. Let oppressed people find relief. If that's you this morning, we want to invite you to come forward and to receive those gifts from Jesus Christ. Please be standing.